Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another incredible episode of Market Impact Insights. You know, in B2B marketing today, it's never been more competitive. There is so much focus around performance marketing, around measurement and metrics, and that is certainly important. But what we can't lose sight of to be really effective in marketing is to think about the connection, to think about the human factor. It's all about engaging and successfully creating behavior from people. So it's people and humans, not just measurement, products, and performance. And I am excited to talk with the guest today. Paul Cash is a creative entrepreneur and storyteller who's on a very personal mission to humanize B2B marketing. Paul has been recognized as one of the top 20 most influential B2B marketers. He's the founder and CEO at Rooster Punk, a go-to agency for B2B storytelling. And what, what Paul really talks about passionately, and we're going to get into this today, is that there is an emerging new truth in B2B marketing, that if you really want to move your products, you need to move minds. So it is getting back to how to connect with people and be successful there. And we're also going to talk about this shift of focus from being so product and feature centric as we move into thinking about people, you're moving from features to feelings, from messaging to storytelling. So we're going to get into all of that with Paul, successful track record, building his own agency. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Paul, I'm so excited all the way from the UK. Welcome to Market Impact Insights. Hey, Dan, that was some introduction. Thank you. <laughs> so I really want to go back and just looking at your story. You know, you've had this successful career uh, working with clients uh, in and around uh, marketing agencies, but you took this path, a very entrepreneurial path several years ago to really create your your own agency and really forge your own path. What really motivated you to do that? Yeah, so I'm lucky enough to have been an entrepreneur since I was 25. And when I look back at the, the logic behind it, I wasn't very good at taking instruction as a kid. You know, So from a very early age, I realized that if I wanted to do my own thing, make my own decisions, live and die by the sword then the best avenue for that was be my own boss. And entrepreneurship back in the early 90s wasn't what entrepreneurship is today. There's a big shining spotlight around modern day entrepreneurship. Back in the day, it was more about just, you know, be your own boss, do your own thing. Um, and I like the pressure of being in control of my own destiny. I like that constant battle with myself to prove my worth, to try and evolve and grow Every year, I'm a, I'm a neophyte. So I love change. I love to adapt, to pivot, to reinvent myself as many times as I can. And, you know, without being a sadist, you know, I've had a lot of tough times in my life. Most entrepreneurs have. And I enjoy the fight and the resilience you need to show when times are tough. And equally, when moments are good, the joy that, that brings as well. But my ultimate drive and inspiration, I guess, is just to just to, to be the best version of myself. I know that sounds really cliche, but as you get older, it becomes really, really important. And 
you know, I want to finish my time as, a, as an entrepreneur and look back and go, you know what, I gave my best shot and I've got no regrets. Yeah, you, you bring up something really important there, very relevant, which is um, in taking that road uh, and being an entrepreneur, it can it can be a lonely place, can it? And there's, that's where all that pressure goes, right? You talked about the toughness. And so it's as much about uh, the mental attitude as it is about this skill set and leadership commitment, it sounds like. Yeah, and I've been lucky enough in the three different agencies that I've set up, I've always set them up with a business partner. So I've always had that other person um, who has been there trying to complement my skill set. So I always look for somebody who's got all the things that I haven't got, as it were. But I can imagine that if you're doing this on your own, then it can be incredibly lonely. Um, I'm not very good being on my own, to be honest, which is probably why I've sought out trying to find a business partner, someone I can share the load with. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you've been at this for a while, but when we think about branding and brand marketing over the past 10 to 20 years, it really has evolved. Things are changing. What are some of the, the major challenges today in doing it well, including even going in and rebranding something you've already got? Yeah, well, I think for anybody who has worked in or knows the B2B side of industry and marketing, the word brand has been a dirty word for decades. It's like taking poison to a kid's party. You mention the word brand to a CEO and it's like, whoa, it all goes a bit crazy. And then a few years ago, everything seemed to change. This focus on, as you mentioned at the beginning, lead generation and performance marketing through COVID meant that people had to kind of tune themselves into a different type of buyer and a different type of global mindset. And we've seen loads of great research from think tanks like the B2B Institute at LinkedIn, Eringer Bass Institute, um, authors like Byron Sharp. And B2B has also matured. And all of a sudden, brand has found its place. And I would say in the last 12 to 18 months, everything's changed in B2B from a brand point of view. And in terms of doing it well, there's probably four things that I try to focus on. Um, the first one is around stakeholder alignment. So it's never been more important to get that C-suite or that founder-led team to understand the real value and potential to the company of what brand can do. And they need to recognize the brand isn't a marketing thing. It's not a marketing challenge. It's a leadership one. And everybody in the company, everybody in the C-suite has a role to play. You know, brand bleeds into culture in a very significant way, which means every person in your company is a frontline ambassador for your brand. And ultimately, you know, a company can own the branding process, but it doesn't necessarily own the brand. That sits with how your customers derive value and meaning from who you are. So that's the first one, stakeholder alignment. The second one I always try to focus on is around strategy. So again, strategy or good strategy to me is invaluable to decide what a brand stands for, but also what it doesn't. And there's a load of good reading and um out there at the moment. In fact, I think we're overwhelmed with good research and good reading around brand strategy at the moment. And actually putting all the pieces together in a meaningful way is the really difficult task. So having good thinkers around you to keep you simple, to keep you honest, authentic, not to get lost in all the brand jargon and bullshit is, is absolutely critical. And then turning that strategy into a plan and give it everything you've got and be prepared to bend and twist and adapt as you go. That's my second kind of one. The third round 
is around execution and activation. You know, I think it's really important in B2B that we give a lot of attention to the aesthetic behind great brand thinking and design. I think in the past, we've given a lot of rationale and support to the intellectual side of what a brand needs to do, which has often come across in, you know, copy and tone. But in terms of that visual appeal and standout, I think there's a there's a big shift that B2B brands can make there and get away from this world of stock imagery and that notion that everything needs to be blue and look professional. Um, and as we head into what could be a recession, slowing markets, I think it's more important that people have brand identities that really cut through and stand out. Mm-hmm. And then the final one is around something that you would expect me to say, which is lead with your story, not with your products or services or solutions. This is so important that brands create meaning and engagement with customers by having a really strong story to tell that kind of glues it all together. So those are my kind of four things that you know really focus my attention when I talk to clients about brand. Yeah, I love the way you just put that together. It's a natural flow from alignment to strategy to execution and then leading with the story. And what I found, Paul, in working with different organizations is you know that first one, which just intuitively you'd think, well, what's the big deal? Uh, I mean, of course, everyone's going to be aligned and and supportive and passionate. I found that to be probably one of the, the biggest ones. That could be the toughest one is just getting everyone in a leadership yeah. to just even have the same definition in terms of what are we trying to achieve. That That isn't easy, is it? I will say the reason I mentioned it's the first one is because it's the hardest one. There is so much misunderstanding, myths, truths, and negative perception around brand that when you walk into a leadership team and they say there's eight people, four will get it and four will just hate it. They won't understand why they're doing it. And it's like until you've got alignment around that stakeholder group, the business will never truly be able to implement a successful brand project that everyone gets behind because there's always people in the background they saying so there's an education piece to be done right at the beginning which is critical to the success of the project yeah that's that's spot on and so you have been this really passionate advocate about the the human side of things you've written a book on humanizing b2b could you explain a little bit more about what that's all about sure well The book simply champions a very simple notion that in complex B2B markets like technology or financial services and so forth, that we need to get away from this blind obsession with talking about speeds and feeds and form and functionality and actually start to put human beings, aka customers, first. You know, we know through lots of research that people buy an emotion and they justify with facts. So let's engage them. This way, let's use purpose and brand and emotion and storytelling and likability as these kind of new master levers to win their hearts and minds. Let's start by earning the right to talk about our products and services and not just expecting it, just like we would in any normal relationship in the real world. And the book takes marketeers through the benefits of this approach and trying to build human first, not product first brands. And there's loads of examples and data points and research and anecdotes and stories to kind of, you know, guide and light the way. And whether you're an experienced CMO or a digital marketing exec, there's something in the book for everyone. It's been written in a way to make it accessible. 
Fascinating. And, you know, having worked in some technology companies myself and you, Paul, I think you've just broken the hearts of engineers and product managers uh, around the world because there is this tendency to just uh, be so proud, of course, of the, the work and the effort, you know, in a roadmap and developing products that you become almost infatuated, right, internally with look at what we've uh, built and uh, we've got to tell everyone about every aspect of what we've built. And then that it's hard to kind of get that alignment and that support to say, hey, we've got to think more about needs and and speak more in the customer's language that resonates, right? That's a really tough thing to do. It is. And, and you, you, you know, you're a thousand percent right, you know, especially when the technology sphere, you know, engineering led leaders, engineering led business, product development, roadmaps, the business and the language of the business is all technology focused. So trying to get them to think about engaging emotionally is tough. And that's why in most B2B markets, brands has lagged so far behind its consumer counterparts, yeah? Because we've had this kind of weird mix of individuals and people, brilliant people, brilliant minds, super intelligent, yeah? But they've not gravitated towards the brand bit until now. And we've made huge strides, I would say. In the last five years, we've probably caught up 30 years um, against our B2C uh, brothers and sisters. So it's an exciting time for sure. And when I speak to any engineer, when you try to break down the power of brand into very simple engineering terms or things that they make sense of, you know, you can have that conversation. People do get it. People aren't stupid. They just, you know, marketing's got so much bullshit connected to it. You just have to strip that stuff away and just start a real conversation so people see the value. And one of the things that one of the quotes I've always liked is, you know, um, you know, brand is your future cash flow. Do you mean you're talking to a CFO that kind of makes sense to them? Well, I kind of yeah. get it, you know. And so a lot of this is just trying to humanize the language we use to talk to different audiences to get our point across. Yeah. And the other side of uh, innovation technology is what impact that has had in actually executing on a marketing strategy. Can you talk a little bit about how on the other side of things, how have things uh, really advanced and, and really been approached in a different way because of the capabilities that have been enabled by technology? Yes, that's a big question. So um, tech's been great on so many levels for obvious reasons. You know, it's created the ability to you know give us rapid insights on parallel levels of data and through automation, the ability to scale marketing in so many ways. But on the other hand, it's being used and deployed by people in many cases in such a granular and siloed way that it creates incredible complexity and frustration within client organizations. You know, most companies that we work with are consumed by their own complexity and tech is part of that problem. And in the medium term, that's never going to go away. Tech is going to advance innovation around um, automation and AI and everything else. And we've just got to work around it. But that also creates an opportunity for, for agencies and other people who need to help companies with stepping away from all that and coming up problems with fresh ideas and new, new eyes on, on the problem and getting away from the conventions that wrap that business into you know, uh, its state of complexity. Um, so to me, that is the challenge. Clients will always have all the new toys and all the new tools in their business, but it doesn't mean that it makes it any easier for them. I think it actually makes it more problematic and more complex, which is why they need third-party support and help. 
Yeah, the irony is, and I, I've certainly seen this play out, is that the more of these advanced tools you have that are supposedly in place to aid more data-informed decision-making, maybe speed-up decisions, I've actually seen the opposite happen where there's so much information that you just get bogged down in round after round of analytics. And then sometimes that decision takes longer. So you're actually doing the opposite of what ideally your goal would be. Yeah. I mean, you look at the first generation legacy software brands, the oracles, the SAPs, etc. If you look at the supply chain that exists behind those organizations and the money that has been made off companies who've implemented them, it's huge. You know, if their software worked first time and it was it was great, then it wouldn't be a problem. But <laughs> there's there's so many things that it doesn't do and so many other problems it creates that there's a whole network of companies that just feed off that ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking earlier, Paul, about humanizing B2B and really making that transition to effective storytelling. Can you talk a little bit more about why that's so essential for effective marketing? Yeah. So the best answer to that question to me is the fact that storytelling is really embedded in the world of science, not in the world of marketing. There's a lot of mumbo jumbo and there's a lot of opinion in marketing. So it's nice every now and again to have something like storytelling, which is in fact a pretty simple scientific formula for getting people to believe in and trust you. Okay. We've all kind of heard the stories about, you know, we as humans are wired for stories and we've been doing it in groups and tribes around fires since, you know, day dot. But what they don't always tell you is that we have a, a neurotransmitter in our bodies, a chemical, so to speak, called oxytocin that is released into our bloodstream when we are engaged by a good emotional story. Now, oxytocin is also known as the cuddle hormone. It's released when we have sex or moments of intimacy with other people. It's highly, pregnant in, uh, highly present in pregnant women um, to create that bonding situation with a baby. And what it's about is effectively when oxytocin is flooding through the body, it means we're more wired to trusting people and building relationships. Mm -hmm. Okay, So therefore, we know how important it is for customers to trust brands and people. So it makes sense that stories have a role to play in business. So this is all backed up by science. The reason why any company would want to use storytelling isn't just because it sounds like a nice thing to do. It is proven that it helps build trust and build relationships. So why wouldn't you as a company want to do that kind of stuff? That is uh, compelling. You've got evidence research base behind it. And yet, even with that being a clear motivator, it's just tough to do it well. Yeah. So that is the other side of this. You know, we can we can all talk about being great storytellers, but the execution of that, just like we can all think we're great chefs. Do you know what I mean? But there are levels there's the chefs that, you know, work in KFC and do the kind of the grill chefing and you've got your three Michelin star chefs like Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. So at the end of the day, storytelling is an idea. It's a process. Of course, there's many different formulas that you can lock into and there's great storytellers around the world with great books out there that gives you a process and a set of tools. But ultimately, it's about the people who the raw ingredient is the the intellect, the imagination of people to be able to feed into that story. And it's not about what you say. Yeah. It's, um, it's about, it's about how you tell that story. Do you know I mean, everyone can say the same thing, but how you tell it, 
well, that's that's the role of creativity and imagination and and all those other factors that are so important in getting people to believe in you and buy into you. Yeah, I would think authenticity also, right, uh, would be important to create that that connection. Yeah, authenticity and you know building again, like anything, it's easy when all these new buzzwords come along to try and fake our way into our customers' hearts and, you know, what's what's the best thing that we can say and lots of people rip off what other brands have done. You know, they kind of get a bit of a kick out of not having the confidence to do their own thing. But you're right. You've got to believe in who you are and what you do and being authentic to yourself um, and finding an interesting way to tell that story for sure. And, and it's also probably something that once you make the commitment to start doing it, as you do more of it, it's like practice to be better, continuous improvement. You're probably building internal confidence as you get more experience. So it's just getting that toughest part, which is just, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to be all in on truly telling a story. And then you just get better by executing. There's no other way. Yeah. I agree. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if culture is a critical foundation the brand, we, we talked about that a little bit earlier. That is really something, especially for a company founder like yourself, to do with your own organization. Like, how do you build a healthy, sustainable, strong culture? What has been the keys for you at Roosterpunk to do that? Yeah, so it is a good question. I was, you know, thinking about this a lot. And I've built three companies. My first company when I was young and stupid and naive built in four years with nearly 150 people. My second company with a bit more experience, just to 30. And now Rooster Punk, we're kind of 25. And there's lots of different things that I've picked up along the way. I would say, first and foremost, the culture is built on success and achievement. I don't think it's possible to build a great culture in a company that's always struggling or, order, or underperforming. So you have to get the success bit right and you have to be working towards a goal that everybody can buy into. And as long as you're inching nearer and nearer to that goal, then culture can thrive. It's when you're getting away from it or nothing is happening, then you're trying to manufacture a culture or take people out for drinks. And, you know, people get a feeling for whether the company is is in a good place or a bad place. So in most companies, culture is very organic. It just kind of happens. It has its own style, its own flow. You get different individuals who become those kind of culture vultures who just make things happen. And then as a company gets past 50 employees to 100, there becomes this kind of need to bottle it and to try and scale it and to try and manufacture it. And that's where it gets really hard because you then kind of lose some authenticity in it. That's the real challenge. But I think to me, having a a guiding purpose having really good and ongoing communication with your team, a simple set of values, aspiring to be better. Probably the most important thing is having standards that you adhere to religiously and believing in something bigger than yourself are things that are all key for me as a, a leader. And I found things that I work with and you know, trying to make myself and the team and the culture of the business flow with it. Now, around that sense of purpose, has it been really important for you to make that uh, in, in a quantifiable way? Is there a specific North Star explicit goal then that you use as a, a rallying point for everyone to get behind? What, what are some of the, I guess, more tactical aspects of making that real for everyone in the organization? Yeah, so that's a really good point. So one of the first ways of making that real was writing the book. 
you know, it's it's easy for us to say, like, let's go and try and, you know, humanize B2B. But wouldn't it be great yeah. if we actually managed to put that into, you know, 13 chapters in a book that we could look at as a bit of a mini Bible on this journey? We're kind of mindful that we're trying to take B2B in a new direction. One of the challenges in, in B2B is it's been very driven around expertise within subject areas. So, you know, you're a search specialist or you're an ABM right. specialist agency or you're a brand specialist agency. And what we wanted to try and do is come up with this kind of almost like a universal philosophy that whatever discipline that you work in, the humanizing ethos can come out. Because we looked horizontally across the, the industry and thought, well, the biggest problem we've all got is the fact we're all still speaking in speeds and fees. We're all doing the non-human bit. And that's the bit that needs to change. So if everyone can start thinking about, right, what are the experiences that we can create? What's the best way to engage people around a story and use emotion and all those things we talked about? Then whether it's search or whether it's ABM or whether it's brand, there's kind of a coming together. So the book really is a, a philosophical view of how we can change B2B for the better. I'm not saying it's the only way, but it's definitely a, a, a vision that I've had based on 30 years of experience working in B2B. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really tangible, important and, and create that consistent frame of reference. Now you're in the business of, with your clients, giving strategic advice all the time. I want to flip that around, Paul. You think about your career. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Yeah. So if I'm being brutally honest, I've not really had any advice that's really stuck with me. I'm sure I've been given plenty, and I was just probably too naive <laughs> yeah. to get on board. But ultimately, I guess I've grown up in an era where we didn't have this bare hug of mentors and services around entrepreneurship. It was kind of you just set your own company up and you did your own thing and you got on with it. And to me, running a successful business requires an insane amount of belief. You have to believe, believe, believe that you are the best, that you are capable of executing against your vision and your financial plan. And even when times are dark, don't let anybody steal that belief from you. It's an entrepreneur's superpower. As soon as you lose that sense of belief, everything else falls apart. So I'm, I have an insane amount of belief in myself. I have to. And I try to transmit that to my team, to my clients. You know, anything's possible. You know, there's a recession coming. Great. It's an opportunity. Let's, let's, for us to kind of, you know, do even better things. So that's kind of what I would say. Belief, belief, belief. And as you've mentioned, you've been through this in terms of building successful companies three times. And I'm just curious upon reflection, I'm assuming you didn't use exactly the same playbook in entirety in every case. You probably had some learning, you know, as you went through that. Did, did you find you having to uh, really think about things a little bit differently as, as you went through that process? Yeah, it's a really good question, Dan. I think the three businesses I've set up all reflect a different decade of my life. And each decade is relevant to my own maturity and understanding of the world and business, et cetera. So my first business, ironically, was probably the most successful. So when I was at my most inexperienced and most naive, I had a <laughs> runaway success business, you know, and, you know, it was right time, right market, all those things as an entrepreneur, you don't really understand, but you can look back on and go, wow, I was just lucky to be there at the right place at the right time. Um, the second one 
I started at the beginning of the 2008 recession. So that was a pretty tough time to set a business up. Um, and then the third one was a reflection of what was wrong with the, the recessionary world that had got us into that 2008 financial mess and trying to build an agency that wanted to work with companies who believed that customers were important, that making a profit was great, but that profit didn't always need to line the pockets of the founders. It could be put to good in other areas and social purpose and, and all those kind of things. So definitely each decade as I've got older, there's been a maturity of my thinking about how I want to create a business that reflects the times that we live in. Um, but trying to get back to that super runaway success is still something that drives me on, thinking, wow, I should be able to replicate that with all the experience I've got now. Um, and it frustrates me a little bit that I can't. But that's also what drives me, to to build something um, bigger and better than my first company. Yeah, it makes sense. And so we were looking backwards, but now let's flip it around and looking forward. So we've got so much going on in the world today, so much dynamic change. But when you think about the future, Paul, what makes you optimistic? So I'm weirdly optimistic about B2B in general. Um, you know, I'm, I love this industry, this sector. It's kind of been in my blood, you know, like most people, I fell into it. It was an accident. My first job at Hewlett Packard, a great American company, very values driven. I didn't have a clue what technology was at the time. But 30 years on, wow, B2B is a super exciting. We are in a golden era for sure. Um, and if I was to look at that 30-year career, the first decade was almost like an information age in B2B. It was literally about just talking about the product speeds and feeds, You know, whether it was through direct marketing or the early generation of first-stage websites. Then we went into this kind of performance and lead generation era for probably 15 years um, and now what's changed in this third era is it's all about experiences you know if you worked in internal comms two years ago you're now in the employee experience team if you worked in you know um, brand you're now in the brand experience team if you work in partner marketing it's the partner experience team everything seems to be experience driven which is great because it means we're putting human beings at the center for the first time ever in B2B. So that is incredibly exciting to me. That makes me optimistic. Um, but at the same time, we are, if you read all the press and look at all the kind of the stock markets, we're heading into some tough economic times. And I just hope the leadership teams don't give up on brand and just go back to that kind of lead gen stuff again. You know, brand is your future cash flow. And it's an important way to think about it. And so I'm optimistic that the past couple of years of brand thinking is going to put leadership teams in a good place as we kind of go into 2023. Yeah, we're at this this critical point, I think, uh, again, where the economic conditions uh, aren't you know, universally positive and there's some challenges, but this is the time where there's breakaway opportunity. If, if you're really thinking strategically, if you're playing the long game, not being short-term focused, then you're right that that strategic brand investment is so critical. So Paul, as we start wrapping up the conversation, do you have any other final advice for business leaders that are looking to take their brand to the next level? Yeah, I would just say, you know, you just need to keep things clear and simple. Don't get lost in the process, which is very easy to do. Um, 
stay true to your origin. Um, don't let all the brand mumbo jumbo kind of derail you. People want to be excited. These are customers, I mean. They want to be entertained, even in B2B. So make sure your brand story and identity is something that's going to interest them and get them talking. You know, I use this analogy. You know, you don't need to show a picture of a carrot to sell a carrot. Do you know what I mean? Get creative. B2B branding and marketing can often be so very literal. You know, and we're past that now. That was kind of, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Let's get creative bring some new energy, life, some showmanship to the way we build the B2B brands of the future. And don't be scared. There are no right or wrong answers to branding. Yes, there are rules and guidelines we've all grown up with, but creativity is your best friend. Use it. And I would say in times of a recession, if you're trying to take on a bigger, more established player who maybe is a bit more wrapped up in brand guidelines and process, then creativity is absolutely the tool that's going to help you dethrone them. A message of courage, very timely. Well, Paul, thanks again for joining and explaining and inspiring us why humanizing B2B is really the key to long-term success. Thanks a lot, Dan. And a reminder to everyone to please give us the gift of feedback on how we can continue to make this podcast even more meaningful and even better. Rate and review. You can do that very easily on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcast. And as always, Make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.